God, we ask for eyes to see and ears to hear the things that you are saying to us this morning as a church. I pray that everything that I made up, everything that came out of my brain, everything that I have as far as an agenda or anything like that, I pray that you would lay that aside, let it not be remembered. But I pray that everything that you have to say to us this morning would be received with gladness and joy. Bless our time together and mold us into the image of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, I hope everybody had a a wonderful Easter weekend. Uh, I hope it was full of family and friends and cute pictures and Easter egg hunts and probably more than enough candy to last until next week. Uh, But beyond the fun things that Easter brings to us, I also hope that you felt prepared for Easter. I hope that your heart and your soul were filled with joy because of the preparation we put into it during the Lent season. I hope that the beauty and grandeur of Christ's resurrection was tangible for you last week. And if it was, that's why we prepare ourselves for holidays like Christmas and Easter. The soul needs time to catch up, to respond, especially in a desert, so that one day it can respond with joy when Jesus shows up. So I thought Easter was wonderful, and there was so much to celebrate, and that's the beauty of Easter. And I love reading the passages of Easter, uh, especially the passages of the resurrection, especially from our text last week, where the most important words in all of history were written in that one passage of scripture, he is not here, but has risen. Amazing statements about how the world has completely changed and sin and death have been dealt with and Jesus became king of the whole world, a king of love and sacrifice. The resurrection texts are special texts because the scripture all points to it, leading up to it, and all of history from now backwards points back to it. It's the central moment in all of history. But I don't know if you noticed in our text last week about the resurrection, that somewhere near the end of that text, there was a verse that was a little bit soggy. A verse that just kind of put a little bit of a damper on the entire story, on the whole history-changing event that we were reading about. A verse that maybe you wish kind of wasn't there. A wet blanket verse. Does anybody remember it? So we had Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, uh, and Joanna and some other uh, women who were with them. They go up to the tomb uh, to prepare Jesus's body uh, after he's been buried. And what they see is that the, the stone was rolled away. The, the body isn't there anymore. And some, some angels spook them and they say, hey, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. It's joyful and it's wonderful and it's amazing news. And then they go tell the disciples about it. And then it says, 
But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Wet blanket verse. It's a bit of a downer on the whole beauty and grandeur thing we've been preparing ourselves for. Uh, It's like, come on, man, this is the resurrection. Keep it positive. Don't put a, a big damper on the biggest story ever told by saying the disciples didn't believe in the resurrection. I mean, if you're trying to sell a new religion, you say, and everyone believed and had hearts full of faith and joy. You don't say, and nobody believed it. This is not what you do. I don't know if anybody else caught that little verse in Easter service last week, and I wouldn't blame you if you didn't. It's kind of easy to just read over and focus on the grandeur rather than the bummer. But this week, it is going to be impossible to skip over the doubt. Instead, we're going to tackle doubt head on because the Bible tackles doubt head on. The Bible is very honest about doubt, maybe more honest than we are about doubt sometimes. We will be in John 20, verse 19 through 29. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. There's Bibles in front of you or under you. If you don't have a Bible, you can have that one. And if you want to study the Bible together, just email me and we'll set up a time together. It's John 20, 19 through 29. For many religions out there and for many Christians, doubt is something to be avoided at all costs. Uh, It's something that gets you shunned. It's something that gets you kicked out. It's something that gets you labeled. It's something that gets you talked about. And it doesn't get you very far. If anything, it gets you sent backwards. Doubt is so frowned upon in some circles that it can sever you from community altogether. It's a barrier to God. But what we're going to learn from our text today is that doubt is not a barrier to Jesus. In fact, Jesus has a special place in his heart for doubters because in Christianity, doubt is not unwelcomed. But doubt, maybe surprisingly to some, is actually welcomed. Not that doubt is necessarily something you ought to strive for, build your entire faith upon, but in the Bible, doubt is just a natural thing and a natural part of faith to be embraced. And so that's what we're going to see in our passage today. So for context, Jesus has raised from the dead. He's done the miraculous. He's the king of the world now. And now he's starting to make the rounds. Uh, So far in John, he's appeared to Mary Magdalene. That's the first person he's appeared to. And that's kind of where we pick up. This is going to be the first time all of his disciples are seeing Jesus after he's raised from the dead. But not everyone is there the first time. Not everybody's there the first time. It's not like they're all hanging out in, you know, as a commune. They're, they're off doing their old, old life stuff now. They're back to fishing. They're back to marketplace. They're back to whatever towns they came from. So not everybody's there the first time. And one guy in particular missed out on the first time that Jesus appeared to the disciples, and his name is Thomas. 
And he is who our text is mostly about today. So John 20, 19 through 29, I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version this morning. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house were, where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace to you. And he said this, or after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the father has sent me. So I send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, then they will be forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, then they will be retained. But Thomas, who is called the twin, as his nickname, he's one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, you have believed because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. So here we have a doubt story. Fearing or featuring uh, one of the most famous cynics of all time. He's famous, maybe infamous, because his very name has become synonymous with doubting the validity of anecdotes, stories, and news. When someone tells you a story and it just seems a little too grandiose, a little too impressive, or a little too unbelievable, you become a doubting Thomas, if you question it. And being a doubting Thomas is almost never a good thing. People aren't calling you a doubting Thomas because they admire your sensibility or your ability to ask good questions or for your healthy skepticism. When someone calls you a doubting Thomas, what they're saying is that you have unhealthy skepticism. Your doubt is wrong. That's what they're saying. And being a bit of a cynic is just in Thomas's nature. Thomas is an interesting guy. He does not get a lot of airtime in the Gospels, only three times from what I can count. Uh, He's a skeptic, glass half empty guy. He's a doubter. He doesn't speak, but when he does speak, he does bring the mood down quite a bit. In fact, when Lazarus died, uh, Thomas is the one person who says, Let's all go so we can die with him. That's Thomas. He's like the the cousin in your family who works at a funeral home. And at every moment, they just have this ability to bring up what they do in the middle of conversation. It's like, he just brings the mood down. 
He's a doubter. But I think Thomas gets treated just a little bit unfairly. I think we pick on him a little too much. I mean, sure, he's a doubter. He has to see to believe, but he is not the only doubter in the Bible. He's not. And for some reason, we associate his very name with doubt. What a crummy thing to be remembered for. A disciple of Jesus Christ remembered for one moment of doubt in his life. It's crummy. But the Bible is filled with people just like him. Abraham doubted that God would fulfill his promises to him because he was old. His wife, Sarah, doubted that God would fulfill his promises to her even while she was pregnant. Moses doubted that God had the right person to rescue the Israelites from slavery. King David wrote in Psalm 94, depending on your translation, he said that his mind was filled with doubt. Uh, Job doubted the justice of God. The prophet Elijah, man, he gave in to self-pity. He lost his perspective and he was filled with doubt. Adam and Eve doubted that God, what God told them in the garden and it sent all of creation into a place that needed to be saved. But for some reason, we pick on Thomas because he needed proof that his dead friend came back to life. See, I think we pick on Thomas just a little too much. And I think we only pick on him because he needed to see to believe. As if needing to see to believe is some kind of terrible evil that needs to be avoided at all costs. Just put your nose down. Don't ask any questions. God said it. That settles it. There is no room for doubt. We treat doubt like it's the plague. Like doubt itself is going to turn you away from Jesus, when in reality, shunning doubters is what turns people away from Jesus. It is impossible to live a doubtless life. When we say that doubt is wrong, we also have to say that the Bible is wrong to highlight it as often as it does. But Jesus didn't do that. Instead, here's how Jesus handles doubt. We come to a point in Thomas's life where some things lately have just been kind of hard. He's probably thinking that he just spent the last three years as a waste. Have you ever been in a job or a situation that felt like wasted a part of your life? I have. That's how Thomas feels. He's basically given up three years of salary to follow some rabbi who ended up being executed like a criminal. Maybe he's depressed. Maybe he's tired. He's probably jaded. He's probably just over it. Life isn't daisies and daffodils right now. So you can probably imagine the inner exhaustion he feels when all of his buddies come up to him and say, Thomas, Jesus is alive. We've seen him. Isn't that amazing, Thomas? It's just a little too grandiose. It's just a little too impressive. It's a little too unbelievable. It's true, but who can blame him for doubting? Put yourself in Thomas's shoes for even a moment and you will begin to have sympathy for the man. 
He doesn't say flat out, no, that's not possible. But what he does is he simply says what it would take to convince him. He says, unless I see the scars up close and touch them with my own hands, I will not believe what you guys are saying. He draws the line. He puts the bar as high as experiencing Jesus Christ himself, up close and personal. And then all of a sudden, somehow Jesus is standing in the middle of the room. It's like he teleported or something. The the doors are locked, the windows are shut, but somehow Jesus is right in front of Thomas, all of a sudden, face to face, just like he used to be. And Jesus looks right at him and addresses him personally, holds out his hand and he says, put your finger right here. And he holds out his side and he says, put your hand right here. You don't have to doubt anymore. You can trust me. Doubt is not a barrier for Jesus. He's not offended by your doubts. He doesn't treat it like the plague and he only hangs out with people who have no doubts. He doesn't tell Thomas that he's wrong for doubting. How Jesus handles our doubts is that he just shows up. Even when your doors are shut, even when the windows are shut, he just shows up. Nobody, nobody touches Jesus after the resurrection. Did you know that? Nobody does. Not Mary, not John, not Peter, not the seven disciples fishing, not the disciples gathered in the house, just Thomas. And Thomas is the doubter. Thomas is the skeptic. The one person who needed to see to believe. But Thomas is the only person that Jesus actually invites to touch him. Jesus isn't offended by your doubts. He shows up in a special way for doubters. Now, there's a reason why this story is in the Bible. There's a reason why we get those wet blanket verses right in the middle of something as grand as the resurrection story. There's a reason why the Bible is actually very open and honest about all of its doubters. And it's because doubt is actually not a damper to faith. And look, I know that doubt doesn't really feel that good all the time. I know it's actually much more comforting to live a life of certainty where everything has an answer and everything can be known. And I really do honestly get that. But the more that I understand the Bible and the more that I understand God and the more, the more I have to acknowledge that doubt is not a damper to faith, doubt is necessary for faith. It is necessary. You can't have faith without doubt. That's what it means to have faith. Faith is just hoping in things that you can't see yet. Doubt is what makes faith real. Doubt is what makes faith do all of the work. And make no mistake about it, we are saved by our faith and not by our certainty. You see, we live in a time and a culture that unfortunately has it all backwards when it comes to faith. 
Some subcultures of Christianity, especially in America, would lead you to believe that to have faith is to have certainty. Faith and certainty are, are synonyms. Um, they would have you think that real faith is saying, I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that God exists. Or I have no doubt whatsoever that Jesus performed that miracle. I am 100% confident that there was a talking snake in a literal garden of Eden. Those kind of statements. Statements that show that you're completely convinced that something is true or real. Certainty is celebrated in our society. We look down on politicians that change their minds because we value certainty. We look down on pastors that change their theological understanding because we value certainty. We even look down on people who need to see to believe that God is real because we value certainty. But let me tell you this. Certainty and faith are absolutely not the same thing. In fact, they are opposites. They are opposites. If you are certain about something, you don't need any faith to believe it because you're already convinced. Faith and certainty are opposites of each other because faith acknowledges that it needs help to believe. Certainty doesn't require any faith. If you, if you can find a Christian without any doubts, then I will say you have found a Christian without any faith. Because certainty eliminates the need for faith. It's not that you can't be certain about things. Certainty isn't a bad thing. There are things that you can be certain of. I am certain that God is love. I am certain that Jesus is the king of the world. I am certain that I love God. But there are things that I am not so certain about. A lot of times I need hope in things that I just haven't seen yet. A lot of times I have to have faith that somehow Jesus will just show up in the middle of some kind of doubt. And I'll be the first person to tell you that getting a master's degree, learning Greek and Hebrew, taking all kinds of theology courses, and even preaching every single Sunday for however many years, those things actually raise more questions than answers. At least it does for me. There's a lot of things that faith carries me through. Things that I need Jesus to show up for. And I'm going to take a wild guess and say that there are probably some things in your life that you need Jesus to show up for. Things you feel like you really need to see Jesus do in order to move it from a doubt to a certainty. But here's the good news I have for you today. Those doubts that you carry are not a barrier for Jesus. Those doubts you carry are not enough to make Jesus shun you like the plague. Some people may have shunned you for it and they were wrong to do that. But there are Thomases in the room today. 
And the best news that someone with doubts can hear is that Jesus really loves Thomas's. He holds his hand out for Thomas's. He doesn't shun or shame them. He doesn't take his frustration out on them. He responds to them. He responds to them in ways that he doesn't for all the others that have all the certainty. If you have doubts today, you can have faith that Jesus will show up. Let's pray, and then we'll have communion together. God, I thank you that for all of history, you have been open and honest about the people that have doubts, even so far as to put them in the middle of the most important time in history. You made sure that we all knew about the doubters. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would show up for us in our doubts. We thank you that that is the example you gave to us in scripture, that for the doubters, you show up somehow right in the middle of closed doors. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith to look for you. Help us to find you when you do show up. We love you and we ask for the grace to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.